Psalm 32. The word of God reads in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose deceit and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was upon me, heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of his word and all the church says. Amen. When Bo and I were examined for licensure and ordination in the Bible exam, one of the questions that comes up is list some of the messianic psalms, some of the psalms that are about Christ. It's a trick question because the The right answer would be all 150 Psalms are about Christ and these are the prayers of Jesus Christ. But that's not the answer they're looking for. They're looking for a few select Psalms that everyone across all traditions would say these are the Messianic Psalms. In my research and preparation for this sermon, I came across this statement by Matthew Henry, whose commentary on the Bible is known Uh, Far and wide, but this is what he says about Psalm 32. This psalm, though it speaks not of Christ, as many of the psalms we have hitherto met with have done, has yet a great deal of gospel in it. And I tried for the last couple of days to make heads and tails of that. But if this if this psalm is not about Christ, how could it have any of the gospel in it? I think Matthew Henry was conflicted as he read through this, for even though the psalm doesn't seem to be directly about Jesus Christ, it certainly points us to the person and work of Christ, as we will see in just a moment. This is a psalm of David. It comes to us without context. We don't know the situation from which or out of which David wrote this. We don't know when and where he composed it. But since it's a context free psalm, it might be a little bit more accessible to you and to me and a little bit more applicable to our life. 
Because we don't have a context here, we can't say, well, the psalm was good for David in that situation, but my situation is different. David writes in a generic sense out of the human experience that we all share. And this is, this is the experience of a man who is ra- uh, grappling with his sin and trying to make sense of how to get right with God in light of what his sin is. Interesting thing here as we walk through the Psalms, he begins with the benediction. We usually reserve that for the end, but he begins with the benediction and he uses the word in English is blessed is the one. But in Hebrew, it's like, oh, happy man. Oh, happy man is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. The word for covered here is hidden, whose sin is hidden. It's God who does the hiding of this man's sin. And that's why this man is so happy. Oh, happy man against whom the Lord imputes or charges or counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David is describing here that the happiest people in all of the world are not those who have everything, so to speak, but those whose sins have been forgiven. A word which in this place means lifted up, carried away, and taken off of the books. Why is this man so happy? Why is this man so blessed? He's happy and blessed because God is not holding anything against him. There's nothing hanging over his head. There's no fear of judgment coming his way. There's no condemnation for him despite all of his failings, despite all of his trespasses and sins and iniquities. And he describes them in a variety of ways. But he's so happy because God has taken away the source of his sorrow and his sadness. Now, we're going to come back to this benediction at the end of the sermon. But I want you to keep in mind that throughout this psalm, David is contemplating for us the sacred happiness of a sinner and explaining to us how the sinner went from being so sad to becoming so happy. And in order to help us do this, I want us to take a a journey inward. I want us to get introspective for just a moment. I'm going to encourage you to do something I usually discourage you from doing. And that is I want to encourage you to do a little bit of navel gazing. Just a little bit. Okay, a little bit of soul searching. I want you to look in for just a little bit. We're not going to leave you there. But I want you to look in for just a little bit because the psalmist shows us that just a little bit of navel gazing, a little bit of soul searching and taking personal inventory can go quite a long way. Notice what he tells us here in verses three and four. He says in a nutshell that the natural response to our sin is to conceal it. It's concealment of our sin. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Keep it hidden. Don't let anyone know about it. Don't let anyone know about your sin. Don't let God know about your sin. But then he describes for us the consequences of doing that sort of thing. And the consequences are devastating. It leads to anguish of soul. It leads to deep sorrow. It leads to a kind of brokenness that cannot be repaired. It drives people into depression. The pain is unbearable. It leads them to groan and roar and cry out. There is inward anguish of heart and there is a quiet desperation that descends over the person who keeps silent. Interesting about the word, interesting thing about the word silent here in Hebrew, the word is also used for plotting evil. When I plotted evil, 
my bones wasted away. When I kept silent, my bones were worn out. There's a kind of play on words here because keeping silent in the face of sin is a form of plotting evil. It's a way of devising a scheme to cover yourself. The psalmist talks about being worn out by groaning, roaring, crying all the day long. And why is this? He says in verse four, for your hand was heavy upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. It was grievous upon me. And yet it was also glorious. Kavod. In Hebrew, it works both ways. Your hand was upon me, and that's why I could feel myself wasting away. God's holding him down. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So again, the consequences for withholding or trying to cover your own sin are devastating. So I want to encourage you in your quiet time tonight and through this week, take some personal inventory of your life. If you think you're good, you're probably not as good as you think you are. You'll discover some things. You'll see some things that you've long overlooked or hidden. Those things need to be brought to the surface. You need to be aware of them, not to tell God anything new, but you need to be aware of them for yourself so you can begin working towards repentance and obedience of the word of God. So every once in a while, you've got to do some introspection. You've got to look inward, but don't stay there. Okay, hear me well. Don't stay there. Don't spend the whole week there. Okay, you can go there a little bit and then come out. And here's how you come out. It's extrospective. After you've been introspective for a little bit, then you've got to be extrospective, which means to look out from yourself to someone else. And you see this in verse five. In contrast to the natural response to sin, which is to conceal it and to hide it, the spiritual response to sin is to confess it. Acknowledge your sin as sin to the Lord. Uncover your sin before the Lord. The psalmist says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me. The word again, forgave means lifted up, carried away, taken off the iniquity of my sin. What are we doing when we confess our sins? We are not informing God of anything that God doesn't already know about us. We are telling on ourselves, but we're not telling God new things about us. We're simply telling God that we are finally aware of what he has said about us. And we agree with him and what he has said about us. And we're acknowledging to him that what he has said about us is true and right. And we are crying out to God to say, we need help. We need mercy. We need grace. We are conceding that we are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. But we are also confessing our need of grace and mercy and conceding in that confession that God alone can deal with us in a merciful and gracious way. We cannot say the same things about each other. We cannot say the same things about all men. It's been my experience in life that 
people are not as gracious and merciful to us who confess our sins to them as God is when we confess to him. And yet God is urging us, the psalmist encourages us to bring out our sin to the Lord. I want you to notice a contrast here that's mentioned. Verse 1 and verse 5 both use the word hide. They both use the word hide. I want you to see the contrast in this. In verse 5, when you hide your sin, guess what happens? It rots and it reeks and it ruins you. That's what happens when you hide your sin. But when you uncover your sin, bring it out into the light, something different happens. God hides your sin for you. Think of that. Your sin will be hidden. If it's hidden by you, it will end in your destruction. But when it's hidden by God, God is the one who rescues and relieves you of that anguish and that burden. God is the one who restores you to health. So those bones that are wasting away are now restored. You see? So sin will be hidden, but when it's hidden by you, it has one effect. When it's hidden by God, it has a different effect. I alluded to the fact that often when we confess our sins, we confess our sins to God. And God is good. He's gracious, merciful, kind and loving, slow to anger. But the same is not always true of men. I'm going to give you a couple of experiences of confession. One, one bad and one good. In the late 1980s, I moved out to Lubbock. I was far away from home. And wrestling with a lot of different things in life, as young men do. Feeling perplexed about a variety of things. And I sat in a church service and listened to a minister preach something on the life of David. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it had to do with David feeling discouraged. And I thought, I resonate with this. And in that tradition, we had what was called an invitation. So in the last the sermon ended, there was an invitation song and you're expected to come forward and pour out your heart, ask for prayers, etc. Well, I plucked up the courage and I stepped into the aisle and I went down front. I sat down and I'm heartbroken, crying, just just a wreck. And this minister sat beside me and Asked me what was going on. So I'm talking to him. And keep in mind, everyone's singing. There's all this singing going on. It's loud in there. And I'm looking for the card to write down my problem and request. And he says, don't worry about it. I, I, I hear you. I remember. I got this. I trusted him. And he got up and he announced this to the congregation. After I've confessed my need for God's help, he confesses to this large congregation of people. We need to pray for our young brother, Mark, who's moved here from the Dallas area. He is going through a divorce and his life is in shambles at this moment. I immediately quit crying. I thought, I don't know what he heard, but that's not me. And I spent the next 30 minutes trying to explain that I am not even married and and not going through a divorce and not to make light of divorce at all. But there was a terrible situation. Confession gone wrong. That's not what I'm encouraging out of you. I'm encouraging the kind of confession that a young man gave to me some years ago in Louisiana. He's a young man that I watched grow up and I cared about him very much. He and his brother both. And I knew that they were dabbling in sin and getting caught up with some of the wrong kinds of people and testing the limits of their parents' patience and pushing the boundaries of of their own Christian convictions. 
And he went over the edge one night and he called me up just to wreck and asked me to come over to his house. And I went to this frat house that he lived in. The place was a wreck and shambles. And we sat in the room and he poured his soul out to me. He spared no detail about the things that he had done and with whom he had done them and how he felt about those things and how he had sinned against God and against his family and against himself and against others. It was a crystal clear confession of sin. And he kept apologizing to me over and over again because he let me down. And I said, you didn't let me down at all. I knew the very first day that I met you that you were a sinner. I'm surprised at some of the things you've done, but not by all of them. Just as you would be surprised by some of the things I've done. There is a way to confess your sin that leads to mercy and grace. And it's not the boastful confession of, look what I did. But it's the heartbroken confession of, look what I've done. The psalmist encourages us in the midst of all of this talk about extrospective while we're on that. Keep looking out. See, he's not saying look at yourself and stay there. But keep looking out. And why do you look out? Because everyone who is godly and offers prayer to God at a time when God may be found will be rescued by God. So you find yourself in the midst of trouble and temptation. You find yourself uh, under judgment or wrath or discipline is bearing down upon you. What does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, pray to God, seek God in your time of need. And what will you find in God? You will find a hiding place. You will find shelter. You will find refuge. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think of that imagery. God surrounding you with shouts of deliverance. This is not a God who is reluctant to save His people. Who is selfish with His grace. This is a God who is willing to come and put a shield of protection around you. To enclose or to envelop you. Not only with grace and mercy, but He delights in doing so. Shouts of deliverance. This is God declaring his own praises over the salvation of his people. Off and on through the years, I've said to, uh, to Shannon, wouldn't it be nice to have a confessor? Not everyone would like that, but I think it would be so nice to have a confessor. Just a place where you could go and unburden your heart, deposit everything and walk away and let that guy deal with it. Right. Leave it there. And the psalmist is saying, you do have one, you dummy. You do have a confessor, and it's the Lord God. It's the Lord God who is saying, tell me everything. Tell me where it hurts. Tell me where it's broken. Tell me what you've done. And I'll take care of it. Tell me all of these things. And he doesn't give us acts of penance to go deal with our sin. He doesn't say, let's make a trade. I'll take the burden of your sin, but I'm going to put another burden on you. That's not what happens here. 
The psalmist urges us to confess our sins to God. And he says, do it early and do it often. Don't put it off until there's a better time and place or a better opportunity. Don't put it off until the next Lord's Day service. The psalmist is telling us that as soon as you are aware of your sin, it's in that moment that you confess it to the Lord. We often play hide and seek with the Lord, don't we? But you notice the Lord never plays hide and seek with us. He makes it very clear that if you seek me, you will find me. He's not playing hard to get. We are the ones playing hard to get. But if you seek me, you will find me. So he says to us, in the midst of your temptations, in the midst of your troubles, in that moment, that's when you need to seek refuge in the Lord. But you know what happens is often in life we feel the bitterness and the anguish and pain of our experience. We just want a moment of relief and sin promises to give that to us. Sin promises to give us what we desire. And maybe for a flash, maybe for a moment, it provides what it says it would give. But what it gives with one hand, it takes with the other. We seek refuge and we seek shelter in something other than God. And yet God is standing here saying, I'll give you shelter. As I was thinking of this Psalm 32, a song by the Rolling Stones came to mind. Do any of you know the song, Give Me Shelter? If you don't, look it up. It's worth it. It's worth it. But one of the things he says is, oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, oh, yeah, I'm going to fade away. But his trouble is he thinks that shelter is just a shot away or a kiss away. In reality, it's only a prayer away. It's only a prayer away. Perspective. It means to look through. And the psalmist is encouraging us to look through the circumstances and situation of our own life. And and even the voice in the psalm changes. So far, David's been speaking. But now, in verses 8 and 9, God speaks. Now that all of the introspection and extrospection are done, now that we've done the looking in and looking out, now we can look through to the other side. And here's God speaking to us. I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. What's happening here? Is we're reminded in this psalm that God does not simply forgive us our sins and then let us go our own way. He doesn't forgive us our sins and wait until we sin again and confess so he can forgive us our sins again. God forgives us our sins and then God forges us into saints. God works by grace and truth to transform us, to help us change and conform to the image of Jesus Christ. God is the one who takes the burden of teaching upon himself to show us the way we should go. The psalmist ends on a happy note here. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love encloses the one who trusts the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And we can look at this and say, well, there's a vast difference between the wicked and the righteous. And there are some who think that. But the psalmist knows better. 
The psalmist knows that there is nothing different about the wicked and the righteous in and of themselves. The only differences that are found here between the wicked and the righteous are these. That one acknowledges his sin and cries out to God for mercy and the other does not. One lives by faith in God and the other lives by faith in someone else or something else. Both might feel sorrow for their sin. Most both might feel devastated because of the consequences of their sin. But one expresses a worldly sorrow that leads to regret and death. But the other expresses a godly sorrow that produces a repentance, a real change of life that leads to salvation without regret. The one who receives mercy in his time of need then responds with doxology and worship and praise. You see, what's happening at the end of the psalm is that God's grace and truth have taken over this sinner who has been redeemed by God's mercy. And now this sinner is responding to God in a new way, not with disobedience, but obedience. He's not begrudging God's presence in his life, but he is glad for God's presence in his life. It's taken hold of his whole life, his body, his soul. You notice here that he has shouts of joy and digging deep into the Hebrew here. You might say that he's spinning round with outburst of emotion. He's doing a happy dance. Because God has taken away his sin and carried it off and taken it from his back. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that we would come back to the benediction at the end. And so we will. This is retrospective. We're looking back now. But not just looking back to the psalm, looking back to the scriptures and to what Paul says about Psalm 32. The question of how sinners get right with God is perhaps the most important question that anyone can ask. If all have sinned and if all have fallen short of God's glory, if all are guilty of sin and under God's wrath. Then who can be saved and how can they be saved? These are the questions that burdened the Apostle Paul. And in his letter to the Romans, he lifted Psalm 32 and brought it in as part of his argument to answer those questions. You heard it in the scripture reading before the sermon to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. You saw it, didn't you, that in Psalm 32, the psalmist doesn't say, I did a lot of bad things, but I did some good things as well. God owes me something. He doesn't do that. He simply points out that he did not do the works that God required of him, and therefore he was worthy of judgment and wrath. But he cries out to God for mercy, expecting to receive something from God that he himself has not worked for. Perhaps God will grant me the gift of life by his grace and mercy. And that's precisely what God did. And that's why the psalmist can say, and then the Apostle Paul can echo, 
Oh, happy man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Oh, happy man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Not long ago, I had the opportunity to meet a man, 69 years of age. He was battling terminal illness. And it became clear to him and to his family that he was not going to make it. And through God's providential arrangement, I was invited to this man's house. And I visited him on several occasions. The question that he had on his mind from the very first day I met him back in July until we reconnected in December was, how can I get right with God? How can I get right with God? Mid-December, I was invited into his room. I walk into his room. He sticks his hand out to me. I think just to agree, we hadn't seen each other in months. I took his hand and he squeezed my hand and pulled me down to his face. His eyes are wide. His voice is faint. And he says to me, the last time we spoke, did I get right with God? I said, yeah, I think you did, brother. He says, I can't remember what I did. I can't remember any of it. Tell me again. And so I pointed him to Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. To Jesus who came to deliver us from sin, death, and evil. And to destroy the works of the devil. I went back day after day for several days and sat beside his sick bed, which turned into a deathbed. And we would read the Psalms, pray, talk about Jesus. He would tell stories about his life. His wife came in and out of the room. His kids came in and out of the house. I asked him, Do you believe that Jesus Christ came into the world and laid down his life at the cross to save you? And he whispered, Amen. And I asked him if he believed that God raised Jesus from the dead. And he said, Yes. I said, If you believe these things, then you are right with God because of what Jesus Christ did for you. That God will count all of the sins of your life to Jesus Christ. And God will count all of his sinless life to you. This, my friend, is how you get right with God. So whatever happens next, you may rest in peace knowing that you are right with God. For no one who puts their trust in Jesus Christ will ever be put to shame. A few tears of joy trickled from his eyes. He raised his hands and he smiled and clenched his fists and put his hands back on the bed. Well, judging by what I knew of him, he did many important things in this life. But getting right with God at the very end of his life was far and away the most important thing he ever did. And the good news about that is it had nothing to do with what he did. 
This was not his own work. It was the grace of God at work in him and for him. As we've just heard in Psalm 32 and echoed in Romans 4, the gospel says that God helps those who cannot help themselves. He comes to rescue and redeem the helpless. At the end of every visit, and I said to this new friend of mine, don't be afraid, brother. When the time comes, trust in the Lord and go in peace. And last week he did. And I want to say the same to you. You're wrestling with sin. You wonder how to fix it. What to do with this mess you've made of your life. What to do with the secrets you're harboring. What, who to tell. How to unburden yourself. You've already done the introspection. Now you need to look away from yourself to Christ. You need to run to Him. Tell on yourself. Plead His mercy. Cry out for His blood to wash you clean. For His Spirit to renew you. And God is faithful and just and He will do all of those things as He's promised for you. Let us pray. Oh God, we cry out for Your tender mercies in this evening. There's not a man, woman, or child among us who has not sinned against You, who has not broken Your commandments, disobeyed Your Word, grieved Your Holy Spirit. Left alone to ourselves, we would all be guilty under the wrath of God, and justly so. And yet Christ has come into the world to save sinners, and that means He's come to save us. I pray that you grant us the grace of repentance, the grace of obedience to your word. I pray that you will grant relief to those who are crushed under the weight of their sin. Take it away, lift it up, that they may be restored. I pray, O oh God, that those who fear confessing their sins to you or crying out to others for help will be relieved of their fears and that they'll be given grace of courage to find help in their time of need. Oh God, truly happy are those whose sins have been forgiven. Happier still are those who know their sins are forgiven. And happiest of all are, no, are those who know their sins have been forgiven once and for all through the person and work of Jesus Christ. For those who grapple with the assurance of their salvation, certain that what they've done will somehow undo the work of Christ, I pray that you grant them hope, faith, and love in Jesus, that they may see that there is nothing we can do to undo what Christ has done for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.